Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. As we've turned the page to a new year, many are wondering what will come next and how to navigate it when it does. We invite you to tune into our series, What Now? How Tomorrow Shapes Today, as we explore the words of Jesus in Matthew 24 and 25. Together, we'll learn to look toward the future because what we believe about tomorrow defines the way we'll spend today. Let's discover God's answer to the question on everyone's mind. What now? Uh, several years ago, I was working at a, a fairly large church, and uh, they decided that they were going to decommission their library. And so they had a pretty extensive library, a couple thousand books that they had collected over the years. And so they decided that they wanted to kind of get rid of some of that, consolidate, move to a smaller library that was just for the staff. And I, unfortunately, was the low man on the totem pole at the time. And so I got the task of going through the library to decide what books we were going to keep and what books we were ultimately uh, going to give away. And so for about the better part of a month, I sat going book by book, deciding if this was a book worth keeping or a book worth not keeping. And so it was a pretty uh, daunting task. But as I went through this ex pretty extensive Christian library at this church, there was one topic as I went through all these books that stood out to me more than any other. It didn't matter what section of the library I was studying through, whether it was commentaries, whether it was Christian living, whether it was reference, all the different kind of things as I was working through, there was one topic that just seemed to come up and up and up again, and I saw books kind of exploring this topic over and over and over again. And I wonder if you could guess what it was. You don't have to guess out loud. Maybe you just think in your head. But the topic was biblical prophecy. There were literally hundreds of books in this library that dealt with issues related to biblical prophecy. The end of the age, when Jesus would return, what were the signs, all sorts of different things. And there seemed to be a book for every, well, dozens of books for every section of Scripture that explored it. And it was during my time going through this library that I realized that Christians in general had a lot of questions about what the Bible said about what the future ultimately holds. Now, I don't think this is just necessarily a Christian phenomenon. I think we as people have an incessant curiosity and desire to understand and know what is actually ahead of us. What does the future hold? We ask these sorts of questions. We watch movies that deal with this sort of topics. We read books. We look for inside information, hoping maybe we can figure out what's actually ahead of us. We, we want to know what is going to happen next. And I think we have all sorts of reasons for wanting to know, right? Some of us want to know what's going to come so we can maybe avoid the disaster that we think is going to happen. Some of us want some inside information because maybe if we can figure out what's ahead, we can manipulate it ahead, right? If I know what needs invented, if I know where the stock market's going, maybe I can use that to my advantage. Or some of us, we just want some inside information. If I could just kind of know and be in the know of what the future is. And I think there's lots of questions around what's the future, what does God's word ultimately have to say about it? I think these questions have even risen to the surface even more so over the last year. And as we've kind of walked through this pandemic and our world has kind of been thrown topsy-turvy and our rhythms turned on and we're trying to figure out, well, what, what is it? Where is this all going? What does this all lead to? What, what does this all mean? I think a lot of people are starting to wonder, like, is this the end of times? What, it, what actually is this? 
Right? LifeWay Research did a study in 2020 of 1,000 pastors, and they found that 9 out of 10 pastors see at least some of the current events that we're experiencing matching those that Jesus said would occur shortly before he returned to earth. The study also found that 56% of those pastors surveyed expected that Jesus would return in their lifetime. Is that what we've happened and experienced over the last year? Is Jesus coming back? What does this all mean, right? Like These are the sorts of questions that I think we all ask. Even if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you're just kind of exploring, you probably even still ask some of those questions. What's ahead of me? What's the future? Where's this whole thing going? Or maybe for some of us, you don't care at all, right? Maybe you're like, what? why does this even matter? Why do we need to talk about a topic like prophecy or the end of the world or all of this? Well, I think it does matter in some ways because what you believe about what happens tomorrow ultimately affects how you think about and live today. Whether that's how you think about actual tomorrow or whether you think about what's in the future and what is coming, how you perceive what the future beholds influences, in some ways, the way that you live today. What you do, what you think, what you believe, how you practice. I think one of the ways that we see this in our culture, even, about this kind of what the future hold influences today is in the discussion about global warming. And don't worry, I'm not going to get political, right? As soon as I bring up topics, I feel like everybody just immediately tenses up, right? Like, and, and I have no interest in having that debate, only to use it as an illustration to say, however you interpret and understand the data influences the way you think about what our policy should mean, for some of us, what products we should buy or shouldn't buy. Like, we have a concept of whatever the future holds impacts my decisions and the way I think about life, culture, society, all of this. What we think about tomorrow impacts today. So I think the question then becomes for us, how are we as followers of Jesus to think about the future? Like what does scripture actually say and what does it point us towards in regards to what the future actually holds and what God's plan is for the whole world? Well, Jesus had a lot of things to say about the future, more than you might think. And oftentimes Jesus had a way of teaching it that impacts the way we think about the way we live our lives now. And so for the next several weeks, we're going to dig into Matthew 24 and 25 together, which is Jesus' most extensive teaching on the future. And we're going to look at what now? What is coming? And how does that ultimately influence who I am and how I am called to live as a follower of Jesus today? So I'm going to kind of jump into the passage, and we're just going to begin to explore a little bit together and let it shape even our thinking this morning. So we're in Matthew chapter 24. I'm starting right away in verse 1. It says, Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly, I say to you, there will be not left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. You're wondering, okay, what's going on 
here? Well, let's situate Matthew 24 a little bit in the story that Matthew is telling about Jesus. So just a few chapters before this, Jesus shows up in Jerusalem. Matthew 24 takes place in the last week that Jesus was alive. And at the beginning of that week, Jesus shows up in Jerusalem riding on a donkey and is heralded as the Messiah, the promised anointed king that the Jews were looking for. Jesus immediately upon showing up in the city of Jerusalem begins to speak out prophetically about the religious system that was taking place in the city, specifically around the temple, which was the center of Jewish worship. And so from the very get-go, when Jesus enters the city, he first thing he does is he goes to the temple and he drives out all the tax collectors and people that were profiting off of selling people animals and different things and collecting taxes so they could engage in, uh, in the Jewish re- religious practices. Jesus then condemns and essentially begins to critique and condemn through his teaching the fact that God's people had turned from God's desires and God's plan and that God was actually going to then reject them and begin to do something entirely new. In fact, in Matthew chapter 23, it comes to a kind of climax with the religious leaders where Jesus begins to pronounce woes condemnations and judgments against the way the religious leaders of Jesus' day had manipulated the people and were using God's purposes and ways for their own gain instead of God's purposes. All of this comes to a head at the very end of Matthew chapter 23, where Jesus offers a lament over the city of Jerusalem. You can see it actually in 2337, where he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones, those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So Jesus has been pronouncing this prophetic judgment on the nation of Israel and its leaders and its center of worship, the temple. And then in Matthew 24, Jesus leaves. He leaves the temple for what would be the last time in his life. And Matthew portrays this as a symbolic act. But Jesus' disciples don't really get that that's what's happening at this moment. They're kind of like still obsessed with the temple. And so as he's leaving, they're like, hey, Jesus, check out this temple. Isn't it awesome? These buildings are incredible. And to be honest, the temple would have been incredible. If you had traveled to Jerusalem in Jesus' day, you would have been incredibly impressed. The temple was one of the ancient wonders of the world, on par with any skyscraper or fabulous place that we see in the center of our cities here. It was tall, built of massive stone, some up to 40 feet long. It was topped in white marble and gold, so much so that they said when you looked at it from parts in the city and the sun shone on it, it was actually blinding to look at. It was this gorgeous structure, and it was the center for Jewish life of everything that they held dear. And Jesus is walking away from it, and the disciples are like, hey, Jesus, look at this. Isn't it awesome? And Jesus offers an incredible response. He basically says, you see this? It's all going away. In fact, the whole thing is going to be torn down. And Jesus' response, he essentially says, listen, you might think this is awesome, but what's actually going to come to this place is a great destruction. Something is going to happen, and God is going to destroy this place, and he's going to change the very nature of salvation history forever. And the thing we know about verse 2 is that it actually came true that Jesus' prediction would be fulfilled some 35 to 40 years later. In 70 AD, the Roman army, commissioned by Emperor Titus, would enter into Jerusalem 
in response to a Jewish revolt, and they would level the city. And in fact, they would come in and level the entire temple, tearing it down stone by stone until simply only the foundation was left. What Jesus tells his disciples is going to happen actually happens. But they don't know, they don't know that yet. And so you imagine there has to be a little bit of dissonance for them. What do you mean the temple's going away? And because of that, they start to think back to the ancient prophecies where God promised that he was going to do a new thing and that ultimately he was going to move and change in his Messiah the way that he was going to operate in the world. Matthew actually kind of hints that this is what's happening right away in verse 3 where Jesus leaves the temple and then it says he sat on the Mount of Olives. Now this is significant in biblical prophecy. It's also where a lot of people title this section of teaching the Olivet Discourse because Jesus is on the Mount of Olives. But there's actually another symbolic act that was happening. You see, God had promised that there was going to be a day where he would remove his glory from the temple and he would move it out of the heart of the city. You see this actually in Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 23, where God said to his people, And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. Now, I bet you can guess what mountain is on the east side of Jerusalem. It's the Mount of Olives. So Jesus is symbolically portraying in Matthew that God's glory is leaving the temple and God is beginning to do a new thing. The disciples start to pick up on this a little bit, and so they have a natural question that comes in verse 3. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? They begin to make some connections in their mind. If the temple is being destroyed and God's glory is leaving that place, then that must signify that this is going to be the end of the age. For these disciples, that was a very particular understanding in their mind because what they believed the end of the age would be is when God would come and he would deal with Israel's enemies, he would reestablish his ruler from the throne of David over his people, and that God would then bring the nation of Israel into a place of flourishing and peace for eternity. And so there are some assumption is, well, Jesus, if you're talking about the destruction of the temple, then you must mean that this, this promised kingdom, this promised end of the age is actually going to be here. And they have those two questions. When's this going to happen? And what's going to be the sign that it happens? And while those are two questions they ask, there's still two questions that hang over our understanding of the future today. There's still questions that we wonder, even ourselves, as we read through the biblical teaching. Okay, well, when we hear stories of prophecy of what is to come, when is that going to happen? And what's going to be the sign? What's going to be the thing to let us know that it's actually happening? Well, Jesus essentially begins to respond to those questions. And in his response, he gives us his most detailed teaching of what ultimately is going to come. Jesus begins to respond to his disciples, and before we jump into his response, just to give you a sense of where we're going, Jesus begins to respond to his disciples on two levels. On one level, he wants to prepare them for what's going to take place when this temple is actually destroyed, which is going to happen in their lifetime. But on another level, in the genius of the way Jesus teaches, he also wants to teach and prepare all of his disciples to interact with the questions of what the future holds and how that influences the way they're called to follow him and the way they're called to live their lives even today. And so Jesus responds in a brilliant way to not only teach them, but to also even teach us 
about how we're to think about what's to come. And he responds to our questions of when is this going to happen and what are going to be the signs. Jesus answers them in verse 4, See that no one leads you astray. So he changes the tension. You're focused on the end, but I want you first to understand that there's some things that are going to happen that could tend to lead you away from trusting and following me. See that no one will lead you, or see, see that no one leads you astray. And then verse 5, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So Jesus, in his response, he essentially begins with the disciples by saying, you want to know what are the signs? What are the signs or what of the end of the age? Jesus begins in his response by saying, let me first talk about what aren't the signs. You see, when we ask those questions of when is this going to come, what are the signs of it? Sometimes we can get so focused on those things that it actually leads us to forget what God wants to do or calls us to in the immediate present. And so Jesus doesn't want that to happen amongst his disciples. So he essentially says, hold on, before we get to the sign, what I first want you to understand is what aren't the signs so that you're not distracted, so that you're not led astray from me and from my call towards the kingdom. So the first thing that he wants us to see is that one of the things that's not a sign of his return is that there is going to be a great deception that takes place in the age between his ascension and ultimately his return. That's why he says, many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. What Jesus says will mark the age that the disciples are entering into and the one that we still live in today, what the Bible calls the last days, is that there's going to be many false messiahs. There's going to be people who arise and who claim that they can save God's people and deliver them from what is actually going to take place. This took place in the life of the disciples. Even prior to the destruction of 70 AD, there were many who arose and claimed that they would be the Messiah to save the Jewish people. But we see that even today, that in times of great distress, there always seems to be false deliverers who rise up and promise deliverance for people outside of the way and the kingdom of God. Distress can cause us to look for someone who will be our Savior, who will rescue us, who will bring us into the place that we desire and the kingdom that we long for. But Jesus says, be careful, be vigilant in those seasons because there will be false ones that rise up that seek to lead you away from me, not towards actually following and trusting me. See, as followers of Jesus, we must be vigilant. We must keep our eyes on who we're following and constantly ask the question, are they leading us to Jesus or are they leading us to some other end? The second thing that Jesus says is not going to be a sign of his return is that they are going to experience great distress in their lives. He says, you're going to hear wars and rumors of wars. 
See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. Jesus essentially says the world that you're going to enter into is one marked of constant conflict, where kingdom rises against kingdom, nation rises against nation. But then he gives the calming word, don't be alarmed by this. For the last 2,000 years of human history, we've experienced constant conflict wherever you look globally. Even the areas in our lives where we experience peace, there's conflict in other places that's constantly taking place. Jesus says, don't be nervous. That's just how things are going to be until I return. He says, not only that, the world's going to continue to experience devastating natural disasters like famines and earthquakes. See, what Jesus says is the world that you're going to live in, followers of Jesus, is one of great distress. It often seems like when we experience times of great distress, like we experienced over this past year, it causes us to start to think, well, this must be it. This must be the end of the world. Ironically, when you look back through church history, Christians who experienced great times of distress felt the same thing. But what Jesus reminds them is, just because you experience a great time of distress, that isn't the sign of my coming. That's not ultimately the sign of the arrival of my kingdom and its consummation. So what are these things that we experience? Well, Jesus tells us what they are in verse 8. He says, all of these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Jesus essentially uses the metaphor to help his followers understand that just like Pain and contractions signifies the coming birth, that the things that we experience on a regular basis signify that there is a day coming when Jesus will return. But just because you experience the pain doesn't mean that the arrival is right this second. One of the things that I was most surprised about when our second child entered the world was how calm my wife was when she first started to experience contractions. Our first kid came a little bit early. He was in the hospital. We didn't quite have the labor process that we were used to, but in our second kid, right, we were at home, and Alicia began to experience some contractions, and I had in the back of my mind, like, the minute she felt pain was like, we've got to get in the car, we've got to grab the bag, we've got to be at the hospital in, like, 2.5 seconds, like, that, that like, if there's any pain, we got to go, and so when Alicia first started having contractions, she was like, I think I'm going to go take a shower, we'll see how this thing goes, like, in the back of my head, I'm thinking, like, shower, like, I don't want this kid coming in the house, like, let's get in the car and move, And what I realized was like, she was like, no, let's time these things out. When they get closer, when it starts to get more intense, then then we'll kind of go and move. You see, sometimes I think when it comes to the distress in our world, we have the similar reaction. Like the, the minute something goes a little haywire, we're like, this is it. Jesus is coming back. Here we go. And what Jesus is saying, here's the key word in his phrase. These are just the beginning. This isn't the end. The the labor's not quite here. This is just the beginning. So when you experience these things, don't don't be alarmed. I'm coming. I'm returning. But if you get so preoccupied with that, you're going to miss what I have for you now in the midst of it. Jesus goes on to say another sign that you're going to experience, but it doesn't necessarily mean the end is here, is that there's going to be a great persecution. Look at verse 9. Then they will be Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. What Jesus reminds us is that in this age, the age that we find ourselves, there will be a 
persecution that the church continues to face that is ultimately indicative of the final persecution that will come. But when we look back of the timetable after Jesus' death and resurrection, what we see is a church marked constantly by persecution. Sometimes it's easy for us to forget that in the West because we don't suffer the same persecution. But when you look at the church globally and you look at the church historically, what you see over and over and over again is that the church is constantly facing persecution and opposition. And Jesus says this is going to be normal. I think that we constantly need to remind ourselves that this is something that will mark our lives, even as Christians today. One story that I think was helpful one time reminding me, just continuing to remind me of this, comes from the book The Insanity of God by Nick Ripkin. Nick spent time studying the persecuted church, and he tells the story one time of when he was visiting with persecuted believers in the country of Russia. And while he was visiting with a group of pastors and believers there, he was hearing incredible stories of how God was working in the midst of hostility and persecution that was happening uh, uh, at the church. Incredible miracles and things that God was doing and persevering and working amongst his people. And Nick tells the story in the book that at one point he got so frustrated a little bit with hearing all these stories because he was essentially like, why am I not hearing this? Why are you guys not sharing these? Why aren't you recording these and, and getting these out? And he kind of expressed in this group of pastors, like, why aren't you guys talking about this more? And Nick tells the story in the book that after he kind of expressed a little bit of this frustration, one of the older pastors took him by the arm and led him to a window that was in the room where they were at, and he kind of looked out the window and he said, Nick, have you ever woken up in the morning and got your kids up and taken them to a window in your house that faces the east, and then you stopped and you watched the sunrise together and you told your kids, man, look at this. Isn't this incredible? The sun is coming up. Look how bright it is. Look how amazing this is. Man, can you guys believe this? And Nick said that I responded, of course, no, I've never done that. My kids would think I was insane. They'd be like, dad, the sun comes up every day. Like, what are you doing? And he says in the story that he didn't quite get the point at first until the older pastor responded to him. And here's the quote from the book. It says, for us, persecution is like the sun coming up in the east. It happens all the time. It's the way things are. There's nothing unusual or unexpected about it. Persecution for our faith has always been and probably always will be a normal part of life. Jesus promised his disciples that this is the way things would be as they awaited his return. Finally, the last thing that Jesus reminds them is that in this season there will be great apostasy. He says in verse 10, Then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Jesus reminds us that there will be those that seek to divide his people. There will be those who will come up and bring false teachings, who will be false prophets that seek to lead God's people away from the truth. This is why we see in the New Testament letters so often they labor to remind us about the false teaching that is to come because they know that there will be many who will seek to lead God's people astray. And Jesus says this is one of the things that we will see in this age and during this time. And it's why he calls in verse 13 to say, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. See, Jesus essentially says all of this is going to come. This is actually going to be the normal experience for the church in this age. But you and I, 
we're called to endure it. We're called to the path of endurance, to be faithful all the way to the end. And what he's saying is don't be distracted by these things. Sometimes we get distracted by all of these little nuances, and this conflict means this must happen, and this, and putting the pieces all together. And what Jesus is saying is, no, focus on endurance. Focus on being faithful. There are signs. We'll get to that. But if we forget what the non-signs are and begin to conflate those as signs, we'll miss the call that Jesus has to say, it's going to be hard. Be prepared. Endure. And then at the end, Jesus moves to his initial sign of what will be the sign of his return. Look at verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. In many ways, in Jesus' opening teaching in this section, he builds like a master musician, crescendoing kind of to the climax moment of what he wants them to understand. Don't be distracted by these non-signs. Don't just worry about this. Here's what I want you to focus on. What you need to worry about the end and what will ultimately bring the end is that the gospel will be proclaimed throughout the world. That's the main idea. That's the idea that Jesus is trying to focus and drive home to his disciples. You want to know, when will it come? What will be the signs of the age? Jesus says, don't worry about the future. Worry about the mission in the present. Jesus always has this way with his disciples when they get distracted about the end of reorienting them towards the mission in the present. He often moves from eschatology to missiology, from what will be to ultimately what is to be done now. This is why after his resurrection, when he stands with his disciples in Acts 1 before the ascension, and they say, is this the time that you will restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus says, it's not for you to know the times and days that my Father has set, but wait in Jerusalem and you will receive the Holy Spirit. And when you do, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Every time the disciples want to know the end, Jesus brings them back to the present and reminds them, no, you have a mission to be about. That's your concern. That's the thing that you're supposed to put your focus on. What is that mission? Well, Jesus describes it in this verse. He reminds us that we have a gospel message. We have good news to share. And what is the good news? That the king has arrived. That Jesus is here and he is beginning to usher in God's kingdom. The world that we long for of justice and righteousness that Jesus is beginning to inaugurate that now, that he is the true anointed king and Messiah, and that by his death and resurrection, he is a making a way for all peoples to come into God's kingdom, to live under God's rule and reign, and experiencing the joy and flourishing that he desires for all people. That's why he reminds them this gospel, this good news of the kingdom and it's going to be proclaimed throughout the whole world. See, not only do we have good news to share, we have a call of who to share it with. Jesus reminds us this word he uses for the whole world is really the idea of the inhabited world where all people are. We are called to bring the gospel. He says, as a testimony to all nations. That word nation in the original language is the Greek word ethne. It's where we get our word ethnicity. 
So when Jesus says this gospel is going to go to all nations, he's not just talking about geopolitical nations here. He's talking about people groups, that the gospel is going to go to all peoples. People groups are people who share common culture or language. That's why we understand them as ethnicities. Currently in the world, there's about 13 to 16,000 people groups. Many of them exist in our nations. For instance, America is one nation but has over 96 people groups. The nation of India has over 2,000 people groups, ethnicities. And Jesus says that the call is that the gospel is to go to each one of them. And then the end will come. But when we hear Jesus' call, we see that there's a problem in our world today. And the problem is that about 42% of people groups in the world are considered unreached with the gospel. That there are literally millions into billions of people right now who do not have access to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But Jesus' promises stands. The end won't come until the gospel is proclaimed to all nations. Jesus has called his disciples as you need to have a heart for the world, to have a heart for the gospel to get to all people and to the very ends of the earth, wherever they may be found. The call to Christian mission is not just a call to our own personal mission, although that's important too, but also to have a lens for the, how the gospel gets to the unreached. Christian mission that does not have a vision for how the gospel gets to the ends of the earth is not biblical mission. And so while we prioritize and emphasize around here that we want to be the people who bring the gospels to our neighborhood and networks, it can never be at the expense of also getting the gospel to those who have never heard it, who are unreached or unengaged with the truth of Jesus. And Jesus says, you want to know what the sign of the end will be? It'll be when you get the gospel to the very ends. When you get it to the 1.3 billion people in India right now who don't have access to the truth of Jesus Christ because there's no one bringing the gospel to them. And so the call for Jesus while we focus on the end is to refocus us on the present and say, are you going to be about the mission? Are you going to be about the task? You know, often when we hear this, we can think naturally, why? Why hasn't this been done? I've often loved and resonated with David Platt's words that it's not that we lack the resources, but too often when it comes to this, we lack the resolve. It's difficult. There are 24 million people in North Korea right now who have zero access to the gospel. It's not easy to get into North Korea. And so the challenge lies before us, and it lies before every Christian in every generation. Will we have the resolve, ultimately, to make the sacrifices willing to bring the gospel to those who don't know? That's why I think when Jesus gives us the challenge that the gospel is to go to everywhere, to all peoples and nations, he also gives us the motive, the thing that will drive us. Because if we're to be about a challenging task, we often need the motive that helps move us in that direction. When I tell my kids to clean their room, sometimes as my parent, as much as I want them to just simply obey them, I have to use a little extra motivation once in a while, right? So if I say, hey, clean your room, and then we'll go get ice cream, well, suddenly the task 
is completely changed by the motive. And Jesus, in this passage, not only gives us the challenge of the task, he gives us the motive as well. And then the end will come. When we think about the end, when we think about prophecy, when we think about what is to come, it isn't given to us so we can twiddle our thumbs or feel better about ourselves or have a pie-in-the-sky theology that by and by one day I'll fly away. No, it's meant to motivate us to how we live on mission in the present, to be about the task of biblical mission in all facets of our life and to move towards getting the gospel to those who haven't heard. Because we desire God's kingdom. We want the world the way he has designed it. We want justice and righteousness. We want human flourishing. And what scripture reminds us is that only comes in the consummation when Jesus will return and establish his kingdom forever. It's what our hearts long for. But if we want to see that world brought to fruition, then Jesus says we need to be about the task and the mission now. So as we consider even our study of over the next several weeks as we dig into this passage, I think Jesus starts in the best place possible which is don't become so preoccupied at the end that you fail to heed the call to be about my purposes today. Because when will the end come? What will be the sign? I'll leave you with this quote from George Eldon Ladd, who was a New Testament professor at Fuller Seminary. In his book, The Gospel of the Kingdom, he asked, someone else will say, how are we to know when the mission is complete? How close are we to the accomplishment of the tax? Which countries have been evangelized and which have not? How close are we to the end? This is what he writes. I answer, I do not know. God alone knows the definition of terms. I cannot precisely define who all the nations are. Only God knows exactly the meaning of evangelize. He alone who has told us that this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world for a testimony unto all the nations will know when that objective has been accomplished. But I do not need to know. I know only one thing. Christ has not yet returned. Therefore, the task is not yet done. When it is done, Christ will come. And our responsibility is not to insist on defining the terms for our task. Our responsibility is to complete it. So long as Christ does not return, our work is undone. Let us get busy and complete our mission. And my call to us as a church is let's be the sort of church that's busy about the mission. Let's be committed to bringing the gospel not only to our neighbors, but let's make the sacrifices necessary, have the resolve necessary to get the gospel to the ends of the earth so that all people might have the opportunity to hear the good news of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and experience the salvation that is offered in his name. And then, then we will experience the eternal kingdom. Then we will experience what we long for. But in the meantime, church, let's be busy about the mission. Would you pray with me? God, I'm thankful in this moment that you're the God of yesterday, today, and tomorrow. God, it's because you know the end from the beginning that you can encourage us and challenge us and motivate us even in the present. Jesus, you knew what was going to come as you taught these disciples. And even now in this moment, you know what is to come for each one of us. 
And it's because of that your word is uniquely able to speak to this direct moment, to challenge our hearts right here. As we hear this call, I pray right now, God, that you would move in our hearts. Give us the conviction, the resolve necessary to be faithful in pursuing your mission. Let us not be distracted by the distress that we experience, but let us be focused, resolute to be people of endurance, to be faithful to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. We recognize we don't have the ability to have that sort of resolve without the work of your spirit. In our flesh, we will fail, but by your spirit, we will be strong. We will endure. We will persevere to the end. And so I pray right now in this moment, Lord, for each one of us in this room or watching online, that your spirit would begin to work to bring that conviction and that resolve into our hearts right now. Even as we worship, we sing this song asking that you would use us for the sake of the nations, that you would use this moment in a powerful way to seal in our hearts this call and this commitment to be a people and church for the sake of the ends of the earth. Would you move now, we pray. We love you. And ask these things in your holy and precious name. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.